Father, I thank you so much for uh, for everyone that's that's able to log in tonight and to be with us tonight. And I do pray that, uh, Lord, just the things that you've put on my heart, uh, again, are things that, that we all need to hear. And we just ask that you would bless our time together uh, and the time of getting into your word, that, that we would hear your voice tonight, your spirit speaking to us, uh, whether it be something that we're struggling with or uh, just having kind of a fresh perspective on who we are, um, especially who we are in you. So I pray that you would uh, just open our hearts, get any distractions out of the way that uh, that would prevent us from hearing from you, whether it be uh, physical things, spiritual things, just things that are in our hearts or in our minds. Lord, just clear that way um, and speak deeply to our hearts. We do love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you guys would turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, or use your phone or whatever you're using these days for a Bible. Um, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. So what's been on my heart, um, again, it's just it's one of those things that just kept coming to my mind and my heart and, until I finally said, okay, God, you must be doing this for a reason. So we're going to look at the Beatitudes uh, tonight. Actually, we're going to break it into two nights. We'll... we'll uh, we're going to do half of them tonight, the other half next week, because uh, there's eight of them. So tonight we're going to cover four of the Beatitudes. So in uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, then by way of introduction here, uh, the Beatitudes are the blessings found in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, now this portion of the Gospel of Matthew is also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And something, you know, I never knew this before, and it just kind of hit me today as I was as I was kind of wrapping up, doing an intro paragraph and things. What does beatitude even mean? Like, what does that come from? What does it mean? So maybe you guys know. I'm sure some of you do. I'm just slow. So uh, the word beatitude actually comes from the Latin, and it's actually um, beati sunt, and that means blessed are. So it's one of those things, kind of like how we use the word uh, rapture, though it doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible, that's taken from the word, the, the Latin word um, that we would equate to rapture. So likewise here, the Beatitudes, it's Beatisunt, and it means blessed are, which is right, you know, at the beginning of each of the eight Beatitudes. So that's what that actually means. Um, so as we get into the passage, it's important to remember that these blessings, they are about our character, not a code by which we live. That's not what the Beatitudes are, that we can just work extra hard to live these things out. It's about our character. And in the context of this passage, Jesus has already begun his public ministry, starting in Matthew chapter 4, um, and he's healed many of the sick and diseased. And, and then um, that now there are multitudes of people that are following him because of all the healings he had been doing. Uh, so then when he sees all these multitudes of people following him. Then he goes up into a mountain to give this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are the first truths that he speaks in a sermon that spans all the way from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. So if you're, you know, if you're not familiar with that, the Sermon on the Mount is those three chapters in the book of Matthew. But here first, if you hear that, you know, the Beatitudes, it's these first, uh, it's actually the first 12 verses tonight. Like I said, we're going to go up through verse, I believe it's 6. Yeah, verse 6. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say. So beginning in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. 
Uh, so it kind of picks up after the healings, and the multitudes are following him. It says in verse 1, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first beatitude we see is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is a blessing when you're poor in spirit. So this obviously isn't speaking of money, just being a, a poor person. It says poor in spirit. So what he's speaking about here, when he gives this first truth, is true humility, right? We're poor in spirit, or basically just recognizing that in and of ourselves, we have no spiritual assets, as it were. We are poor spiritually, and we really have nothing to offer or nothing to give God. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, see, we recognize that often before we get saved, but then I think the longer we are saved, the more life we live after that moment, I think sometimes we can forget that, that we really are poor in spirit. But Jesus said, blessed are those. There's a blessing. And um, something else I, I kind of looked up as I was studying this out, that same word that's translate, translated blessed or blessed is also elsewhere in the New Testament translated as happy. So really, that's what these things are keys to is, you know, we, we associate happiness with the, the external. Uh, things can make us happy. They can make us sad. But Jesus says, if you want these things deep down in who you are, these blessings, this, this sense of, of happiness that's deep-seated within you, you got to always remember that we are poor in spirit. And we really have nothing to offer God. It's all Him in us. So we have no assets of our own. And it cannot cannot be manufactured. We cannot manufacture having this attitude, this character of knowing that we're poor in spirit. But it only comes from a personal encounter with the Lord, not just before you get saved, but throughout your Christian life. It comes through personal encounters with the Lord. In Luke 5 verse 8, um, you guys can you know, want to write that down, Luke 5 8. You don't need to turn there, but uh, this is the passage where the disciples are, well, you know, Peter and the other guys, they've been out fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. And Jesus basically tells them, go back out and, and launch into the deep. And Peter says, all right, look, we've been fishing all night, but at your word, we'll do it. They catch all the fish, so much so that the net breaks. And this is when Simon Peter has a very close personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and his reaction what he says when he has that genuine personal encounter with God, with Jesus Christ, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When he had a genuine personal encounter with Jesus Christ, he understood how spiritually poor he really was. And then another one, again, don't turn there, but Revelation 1, 17, you know, we're dealing with the Apostle John, who was the closest guy to Jesus Christ. And even John, you know, after, at the time of this writing now, Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, he's ascended. And, and you've got John, who was the closest, the beloved disciple. And then in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees Jesus, he sees Jesus differently than he had seen him before, right? If you're familiar with Revelation chapter 1, his eyes were a flame of fire, his hair was white as wool, uh, like golden feet, 
he gives this uh, very uh, descriptive passage on what Jesus looked like when he saw him. And John, who knew Jesus, who loved Jesus, who had been saved for, let's see, if Jesus left the planet around 30 AD, this is now 90 AD. I mean, John has been saved for 60 years and walked with the Lord, believed the Lord, trusted the Lord, did what he was called to do. And when he sees Jesus, he has this personal encounter. It says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So this poor in spirit, and you know, I had a couple other passages that I wanted to go to, but we don't need to beat a dead horse. If you're interested, you have Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the throne of God, you know, and woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That personal encounter with God took Isaiah and showed him, man, I am nothing I am, I am a sinner. And the same thing happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel has a vision of Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus Christ. And the same thing, was, he says that his strength left him. There was no comeliness. His comeliness was turned in on himself. Right? These godly men that we read about, those personal encounters made them realize how spiritually poor they are before a truly holy God. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's something we got to know on the inside of us. And unfortunately, we're very good at taking our life back into our own hands instead of humbly seeking God, right? That's, that's how you keep this attitude, is keeping that humility, that true humility of knowing only through Christ, only with our relationship with Him and God the Father, that, that we can make our way through this life. We... We would say we're poor in spirit, but we don't really act like it or live like it often. You know, in Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 17, 14 was, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. Daily, right? This is something we need every day, a healing and a saving. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. See, it's understanding that, that only, the only hope for that healing, for that salvation on a daily basis, for having this poor in spirit, is that relationship with God. And then he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we know that that's the physical, that's the literal kingdom that right now is in the heavens, but ultimately will be here. But he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, those that are poor in spirit. And that's because it takes true humility Truly understanding we're poor in spirit to get saved. But then after that, it takes that same true humility, that poor in spirit, to actually walk with God. To trust God. To let God do the leading and not us ourselves. Go ahead. Always keep your place in Matthew 5 because we're going to be going back there. But turn to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, uh, starting in verse 29. Psalm 69:29. We're going to go through verse 34. He says, "But I am poor and sorrowful." Right? This is a psalm of David. David, the king, the rich man. I am poor and sorrowful. He's talking about something deeper. Not 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 physically poor, but something deeper. I am poor and sorrowful. 
And then he turns to God, let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. David understood he couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't do it without God. Let you, you God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hooves. Praising God, turning to God in any situation, that, that praises him, that blesses him, that glorifies him more, pleases him more than any physical sacrifice we could do. And that's what he's saying here. Just God will be pleased if I just turn to him and not with physical sacrifices. Verse 32, this, again, where this ties back in, the humble, the poor in spirit in terms of the Beatitudes, the humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heavens and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. And that's us. And that's seeking God, understanding that we are poor in spirit. And if we would truly understand this and truly live like this, there's a blessing. There's a, a deep-seated happiness that comes from understanding these things and living this way. So go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Go to verse 4, the next beatitude. So first we have, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to note, as we move through these first four Beatitudes, they build on each other. And you'll understand here as we get into the next one, that why poor in spirit was first. And it had to come first, because that's what leads us to Christ, understanding that we're poor in spirit. And then what flows next, verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This has to flow out of being poor in spirit because that mourning that he's talking about is a mourning over our shortcomings. It's a mourning over our failures, a mourning over our sins. And then once we've been saved, it's still a mourning over those things, but it's a mourning over the condition of the world, what the state that this world is in as we maintain that view of Jesus Christ. Right? We are poor in spirit. We need to keep that attitude, that humility. And when we do, and we've had that personal encounter with God, we will mourn over our sin. We will mourn over the failures. But that's okay, because there's this blessing that flows out of it. So mourning over those things. Don't turn there, but James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. James 4, 8 through 10. He says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You see how these things tie together with that humility and that mourning. See, we carry on about getting wrapped up in this world and everything that it has to offer. And we're caught up in our, you know, our laughter and our joy in this world. And that's why James is saying, understand, you've got to draw nigh to God. And then he says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. It's easy to get caught up in the world. And this is what Jesus was talking about. Blessed are they that mourn. 
mourn over their sin, that we, we would weep over it. And then also the state that this world is in, in Ezekiel 9, verse 4, he made a very interesting statement concerning Jerusalem. And we could say the same thing about our country, our towns. We could say the same thing about the world that we live in. Ezekiel 9, 4, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. You need to go through there. Now, this has an end times context to it. But this is what will be taking place. Is this how we feel about the world that we live in? Go through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Are we brokenhearted over the abominations that take place in the world around us? Those are the kinds of things we need to be mourning over. Mourning over those things. Because there's a blessing. And what's the blessing? We shall be comforted. Right? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a happiness. There's that joy. There's that comfort that comes. Go ahead and turn to John 16. John 16. Because how are we comforted? Jesus told us exactly how we would be comforted when we were full of sorrow or when we were mourning. John 16. And as you're turning there, Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, it says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Do we have that morning? Sowing in tears, we will reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, the word of God shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. We go about mourning. We go about sowing the seed, bearing it, bearing that precious seed. We will come in with a harvest when we have this attitude, when we have this mourning over who we are outside of Christ and who we are even in Christ. Just the fact that we still disgrace his name on a daily basis. When we're mourning over that, there's a blessing that comes. We will be comforted. John 16, verses 5 through 7. And in this context, Jesus is in the middle of telling his disciples how he's got to leave. He's going to be crucified. He's got to ascend. And they're not going to see him. They're not going to see him anymore. And so we pick up in verse 5. He says, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh, asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, Sorrow hath filled your heart. They have this mourning, this sorrow. But then he goes to say, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. We will be comforted by the Comforter, by the Spirit of God. He said, I know sorrows in your heart. I know your mourning. But I've got to go so the Comforter can come. And he can bring that comfort to you. So blessed are those that mourn. There's a blessing. There's happiness that flows out of mourning. It's what Jesus promised. Go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verse 5 to see the next beatitude that flows out of this one. So blessed are those that mourn. It's a blessing. Matthew 5. Verse 5, 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So blessed are the meek. Again, see how this flows. This is why these are, are character qualities and not a code of conduct. You started with being poor in spirit, understanding true humility, how we have no spiritual assets. We have nothing to offer God. That leads us to Jesus Christ. When it leads us to Jesus Christ, we should have a mourning over our sin, a mourning over the sin of the world. And what flows out of it, when we have those understandings that we are poor in spirit, when we have the understanding that we need to be mourning over our sin, that should flow with meekness, should flow right out of that. Because meekness is not, not, not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was referred to as meek. He was not a weak man. Moses was referred to as the meekest man on earth at that time. Do we think Moses was weak? Can any of us even fathom leading that many people through a wilderness journey? Moses was not a weak man, but he was a meek man. So meekness is associated with a few different things in the scriptures. And one thing is lowliness, lowliness. And you can find that in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Don't turn there. But that's where Jesus said, you know, basically, come unto me, all ye that labor and are, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, and then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Meekness is very closely associated with lowliness, being lowly. Not thinking too much of yourself. Not being puffed up. Meekness is having that in check. And it's not this, not being degrading to yourself either. Like walking around like Eeyore. Like, oh, I have nothing to offer. God can't use me. No. It's having a lowliness. Having our pride and our arrogance in check is lowliness. It's also associated with being led by God. Meekness means... That you're being led by God. In Psalm 25, verse 9, it says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. It's to the meek that he can guide us in judgment. To the meek, he will show his way to the meek. Therefore, we're not thinking too much of ourselves. In James 1.21, again, so how's he going to teach us that way? James 1.21, he says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. It takes meekness to let the Lord lead and to take the word of God and let it be engrafted into who you are. Again, that's why these things are character and not a code to live by. So meekness is not weakness. It's associated with lowliness. It's associated with being led by God. Another thing it is, it is not apt to retaliation. When you are meek, you're not quick to want to retaliate or get revenge or take vengeance for yourself. In Psalm 147, verse 6, it says, The Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. Right? It doesn't say we lift ourselves up. The meek are lifted up by the Lord. And the wicked, God will cast them down. That's God's job. So the meek are not apt to retaliation. 
That's not their, their gut instinct to retaliate when things come against them. Which really flows into the last point under meekness, which is having power and authority under control. Having power and authority, but, but having it under control. It doesn't control you. You control that power and authority. Just like Jesus did as he was on the planet. If anyone had the power and authority to do anything that they saw fit, anything to retaliate, it was Jesus. He could have done anything, but he didn't. So having power and authority under control, and you could write down 2 Timothy 2.25. You know, as Paul's writing this to Timothy, who is a pastor, some of his advice to Timothy as he's leading a flock, he says, in meekness, right? Because Timothy's the pastor, so he's got authority, he's got the power in this church, as it were, but he tells him in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. It takes meekness. It's that power and that authority, keeping it in check, not abusing it, but being led by God on how to lead people. There's a blessing there. A blessing in being meek, a blessing in letting the Lord lead you. And it says, for they shall inherit the earth. It doesn't say the world. We're not going to inherit the world. Praise God for that. He'll do away with the world and its system. But inherit the earth. And again, uh, Psalm 37, 11. And uh, this would have a very serious uh, millennial context to it, a millennium context. Psalm 37, 11, it says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, on a devotional, on a practical level, we inherit the earth, right? The, the earth is ours, right? Paul said that basically everything's, everything's lawful for me, right? God has left us here, and this is, this is where we're at. We'll, we'll inherit the earth. But delight in the abundance of peace that comes from meekness. There's a peace that is, that is a part of who you are. It's one of the blessings through meekness. Not only that, the millennial context where is there's that reign of Jesus Christ, where we have that rest from all the works of the world, all the works of the devil. There's a peace. And he says that we shall delight in the abundance of peace. There's a blessing in meekness. And those things all flow together. Go ahead and back to Matthew 5, verse 6. <clears throat> and this is the last one we're going to look at tonight. It says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, as these things flow together, this follows understanding that we are poor in spirit. And it takes that humility and then mourning over our sin, which leads us, should be fairly easy to, be, to remain meek when we understand that we're poor in spirit and we're mourning over our sin. This meekness that flows and through all that, what, what is the next character thing that comes out of us? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Not for food and for drink, but for righteousness. So, I wanted to ask a question. You guys can just put your hands up if you want. Have you guys ever been so hungry? Or have you gone so long without eating that you will eat like anything that's put in front of you? 
because I, I know I have. I've been like starving where it's like, I don't even care what it is. It's got to get in me right now. Right? So have you noticed that when you're really, really hungry, when you're starving, even food that you normally don't like is like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. How come I never liked this food before? Right? It tastes better than it ever used to. So my question is, do we ever hunger for righteousness that way? Do we ever thirst for righteousness like we haven't had a drink in two days? Because that's what he's saying here. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We've all been hungry and we've all been thirsty for food and drink. Have we ever been so hungry and so thirsty for righteousness we'd do anything to get it? Because there's a blessing that flows out of that. We're seeking after that righteousness. We hunger for it. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. We're going to look at verses 11 through 23. It's a big bite. but Romans 6, 11 through 23. So do we ever hunger for righteousness the way we do for food? Do we ever thirst for it the way we do for a drink? working outside all day. This past Saturday, when it was so nice out, I think I went outside at 8.30 in the morning and didn't come back in till 7 o'clock at night. I mean, just out working all day long. And I'll tell you, I was thirsty. It was good and warm and out working hard. But do we feel like we need righteousness, like we need that glass of water, like we need that meal? Hungering for it, thirsting for it. Romans 6. Verses 11 through 23, because we didn't used to have a choice in the matter. We had no choice but to yield our bodies to sin. Now, on the other hand, we have a choice, and we're free to yield ourselves unto righteousness. But we're not going to do it if we're not hungry for it, if we're not thirsty for it. So Romans 6, verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And dead, all it means is separated, right? Death means separation. So said he says, reckon yourselves to be dead, separated from sin. Verse 12, let not sin, therefore, since you're separated from it, let not sin, therefore, reign, or have control in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye yourself, yield ye your members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The decisions we make, the things we do with our hands, the things that come out of our mouths, the things that are running through our mind, they should be righteousness. They should all be instruments yielded unto God, being led by God, fit for the master's use. Verse 14. Now that you're saved, for sin shall not have dominion over you. It will not have control over you. For ye are not under the law. You're not under the law anymore, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? You guys know the answer. God forbid. We don't just sin because we're saved and it's covered. Verse 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death 
or of obedience unto righteousness. Don't think that just because we're saved, we can't yield ourselves unto sin and become the servant of sin again. He's saying it ought not to be this way. Verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Because that's what it will then produce. Righteousness unto holiness. Verse 20. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Right? You were free from it. You had no ties to righteousness when you were the servant of sin. When you were lost. You basically didn't have a choice in the matter. And even if you could do things that were righteousness, we find in the book of Isaiah, it would be your own righteousness. And he says all our own, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. So you, even your righteousness was unrighteousness because we often have these selfish motives, these selfish desires. Even if we don't go around telling everybody, hey, I did this, I gave this, there's still this sense inside of you that you did it for you. You did it because it makes you happy. So I lost totally where we were. We were in verse 20. Verse 20. So you were free from righteousness. Verse 21. Let's think back. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? What fruit was there to be caught up in those things? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end, everlasting life. That's righteousness. And then, you guys are familiar with the last verse in this chapter, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I know it's been said before, but it bears repeating, the wages of sin is death. It may be your physical death, Fortunately, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're His, it doesn't mean eternal death. It doesn't mean eternal separation. But our sin could lead to our physical death here, the death of relationships with people. It could be the death of your ministry. It could be the death of a marriage. There's lots of death. There's many ways to kill a man, as the saying goes. It's not just physical death, but trust and know that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the cure. That's the answer. Romans 8.10, don't turn there. It says, and if Christ be in you, if you're saved, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit, capital S, is life. Because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. Because you have the spirit of righteousness inside you. You can be righteous. We need to hunger and thirst for it. Because in Romans 14, 17, he says, For the kingdom of God, now that's that spiritual kingdom, that kingdom within us, is not meat and drink. It's not outward things, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? If so, we are very 
productive members of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, hungering and thirsting for it. And when you do, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the blessing, the happiness that flows out of this is you will be filled. So I have another question. How do we know what righteousness even is? It's through the word of God. This is how we learn what is righteous, what is right. We learn it through the word. So then how do we apply righteousness, right? How do we apply things that we get from the Bible? There's a, there's a Bible word that we know, and it's called wisdom. Wisdom is not just having the knowledge of things, but then taking those things you know and knowing how to use them in specific circumstances. So we get to know what righteousness is through reading the Bible, and then it takes wisdom to be able to apply it. So go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. This will be the last place we turn, James 1, verses 5 and 6. So applying righteousness. We get it through the Word, and then we need to know how to use it. How do we, how do we make righteous decisions? We need wisdom. We need the wisdom of God to know what is the right decision here? What is the right thing to do here? Because often we can be faced with multiple good choices or things that multiple things that we think are good. How do we know what's righteous? We need wisdom. And there's only one way to get wisdom, and it's from God. James 1, verses 5 and 6. And you guys are familiar with this. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You want wisdom? You want to be able to know what the righteous choices would be? Ask. Ask God for wisdom. But there's a stipulation, and it's found in verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. Nothing. There's no wavering on this thing. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And then even in verse 7, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Asking in faith, nothing wavering. If we want to know how to live righteously, we need the wisdom of God. And the only way to get the wisdom of God is to ask. And to ask in faith, not doubting, not wavering, fully believing that he will do what he promised to do. It says that he gives it to all men liberally if they just ask. If they just ask. You know, we could even compare this out to James chapter 4, where he talks about, you know, where do, where do uh, wars come from and fightings come from, right? They come from our own selves, from our own lusts. And he says, you know, you fight and you war because you have not. But the reason you have not is because you ask not. And then even when you do ask, you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Same thing with wisdom. Same thing with this not wavering and asking in faith. It can't be to consume it upon your own lusts. It can't be for selfish reasons, for that, that selfish agenda. It's got to be for him and for his glory. So that's what these Beatitudes are beginning to lay out. And these first four really flow together. They fit together perfectly. They build on top of each other. As we get into the next four, it's interesting how he kind of makes a break from this building and goes a slightly different direction. But for tonight, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Receive the blessing of understanding that we have no spiritual assets. We have nothing to give, nothing to offer God. It's only through him that we have those things. And then let's be mourning over our sin. And if we're not, ask ourselves why. Why don't I mourn? Why doesn't it affect me? You know, I I hope none of us come to the conclusion that maybe maybe we are not genuinely saved. But if we do come to that conclusion, it's a perfect time to deal with it immediately. And if we are, maybe we've just been wrapped up in sin for so long that that conscience is seared and we're not mourning over it anymore because we're just so accustomed to it, accustomed to that sin. So realize we're poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, let that meekness flow, having that that power and authority under control, but keeping everything in check, being having that lowly attitude, being led by God and not apt to retaliating and, and revenging people. And then we'll be hungering and thirsting after righteousness, true righteousness, knowing what God would say, hey, here's what you need to be doing. Hungering and thirsting for that. It's a character quality. It's got to come from deep inside. So the first thing is you need we need to hit our knees in prayer be talking to God about these very things. Because this right here, this is the blessed life. This is the blessed life that Jesus is laying out. Right? We want blessings. We often want them without the, the hardship. We want them without the, the sufferings that are tend to be associated with it. But these blessings, they flow out of things that aren't natural. They aren't easy. And we cannot do it without God's help. And I wanted to open it up to you guys. Uh, anything that God hit you with or, you know, maybe anything you're struggling with, anything you'd like to uh, to just speak on with this or really anything else that's going on in your life. So we're going to go ahead and open it up now.